Well, it's called the Beverly Hills of the Dead. Located in the Philippines, the Chinese Manila Cemetery stands among the most extravagant of all cemeteries. It's more like a neighborhood than a cemetery. In place of tombstones and markers and flowers stand houses. Some homes are three stories tall. These are luxury tombs, to be sure. Elegant landscaping. It's been said there in that cemetery, the dead live better than the living. Functioning kitchens, working bathrooms, bedrooms to sleep alongside your deceased. Those buried there had great, great wealth. They did well in this life and stored up. Now, in that particular culture and in that religion, it was thought that if you set aside these things, you would use them in the life to come. These were ornate tombs which turned into homes built for the dead, wealthy. Well, we know that hundreds of errors exist about the life to come. Some believe that every religion of the world is just one more path to God. It's one of many paths. But God has revealed a very specific and clear path to himself. It's in a person, Jesus the Christ, and it's in the message called the gospel. Now, it's possible to come close to Christ, to possess knowledge of who he is and what he has done. It's possible to understand the gospel, to have a a little church, a, a little religion in our lives. It's possible to come so close to the kingdom, yet miss it. These are sad cases indeed. And it's a scene we will witness this morning. If you would, open up your Bibles with me to to Matthew chapter 19. We'll begin in verse 16. It's the account of the rich young ruler. In this account, we will see a man who lives very well. He comes so close to Christ but is in no way ready for eternity. And this morning we'll correct three misconceptions about salvation, about the kingdom of God and how to go to heaven. I want to look at the first few verses, verses 16 through 22. It's the first misconception. We can win God by doing good. Or we can win God by being good. Verse 16, Matthew records, someone came to Jesus and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? And he said to him, Why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good, but if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. Then he said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not commit murder, you shall not commit adultery, 
You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these things I have kept. What am I still lacking? Jesus said to him, If you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. We'll begin here this morning with a Q&A. It's a question and answer between Jesus and this man. Now, there's a progression in their discussion, and we see that as these questions and answers unfold. Jesus is attempting to draw him out, and we'll see that in a moment. Matthew writes in verse 16 that, quote, someone came to Jesus. We can learn more about who this someone is. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record this account. And when we put their accounts together, we can discover just who this man is. We know, first of all, that he's rich. Luke says he's, quote, extremely rich. We know that he's young. Twice Matthew mentions this in verse 20. And then again in verse 22, some put this Greek word for young in the range somewhere between age 20 and age 40. And we also know that he's a ruler. Luke again gives him this title, he is a ruler. Well, he comes along and he asks Jesus, what good thing shall I do to obtain eternal life? Let me tell you, friends, it doesn't get any better than this. Would we not give anything to have someone come up and ask us this. I mean, we spend lifetimes praying for loved ones. If only they would come and ask us these questions. I need to tell you, by the way, we did an outreach last weekend, and if you haven't done this, you need to come out with Emmanuel and do this some weekend. I was assigned Jared. Jared was my partner. It was a good assignment, Jared. We were headed through Bellingham going along Cornwall. And one of the restaurants was getting set up for that day's lunch. There was a man outside setting up tables and chairs. Well, I walked up to him and I asked him, I said, hey, would you like a Bible? And he said, yes, thank you. I was like, great, this is, this is wonderful. <laughs> and, and do you know what he said next? I, I, I couldn't believe what he said next. He says to me, I want to stop sinning. I mean, whoever was praying that morning, you have found a new full-time job. (laughs) That reminded me of this account of the rich young ruler, where there's something already going on in the heart of the person. There's some kind of knowledge. There's some kind of light. Something is, is going on. Notice how Jesus, notice what Jesus does. He replies to the man, but he does it by asking him a question. And we need to keep in mind throughout our account this morning that our our Lord knows something about this man. Um, We know that Jesus is able to see to to the depth of the heart, and and he knows things about this man. He's he's able to, by the end of the account, put his finger on on just what is happening in this man's life. And Jesus asks him this question, "Why, why are you asking me about what is good? He said, there is only one who is good, but if you wish to enter life, Keep the commandments. 
In other words, this whole idea, this word good, good is relative. Good is subjective. For something to be good, we need a standard, don't we? We need a standard as to, to what that good is. What does it measure up to or what does it measure against? Because the tendency is to define good according to our own standard. I am good in that I'm not as bad as I used to be. I am good. I'm not as bad as that guy over there. My child is good. He's not the school bully. My marriage is good. I'm not on the couch. But what's the problem? This is no way to define good. We don't get to make up the definition for good. R.C. Sproul has said, we judge ourselves by ourselves. That's the tendency of the human heart. And that means that we often begin with ourselves. We consider our sins or our proclivities or our bad habits, and we then define good in some way to, to whitewash them or include them or ignore them. And let's not pretend that we don't still do this even though we're believers. You see, the underlying assumption in all of this is that I am good. And this is an error that we are still prone to make. It's the error of the rich young ruler. And this is what Jesus does then. He notices this, and he goes after this underlying assumption. He shapes his message again that's specific to this man's situation. This is something that we might do when we evangelize someone. We might have a friend or someone in our lives, we, we know them, we understand them, we understand their beliefs and, and what they value. Well, when we share Christ with them, we take all of those things into consideration. We're able to, to share the gospel in a way that's specific to them. And there's nothing wrong with doing it that way. There's nothing wrong with doing it in a general sense. You might remember the uh, book of Acts in chapter 16. The Philippian jailer asked Paul and Silas, what must I do to be saved? And they say, believe in the Lord Jesus. That's a, a general approach to the gospel. Jesus in this passage, however, he, he gets specific. There is a standard for good. And God is that standard. And God is perfect. And for anyone to be good, they must be as perfect as God is. Well, how does one do this? Jesus points to the commandments. He says, look at the law. In fact, that's what he recites. This prompts the question from the rich young ruler in verse 18, which ones or, or which commandments? Now, keep in mind the backdrop to this whole situation here. By this point in the history of Judaism, there have arisen a complex web of, of do's and don'ts for religion. There are now traditions and oaths and oral laws, and they've been given through scribes and lawyers and Pharisees. This rich young ruler must think there are, are, there are certain commandments. There are some specific ones that I must focus on and really hone into. Those are the ones that will count. Which ones, he asks. You shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. Jesus recites a portion of the Ten Commandments. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
Did Jesus just teach a salvation by works? Is he saying to the rich young ruler, if you do these steps, you will inherit life? No. Because first off, if you recall the Sermon on the Mount back in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus speaks of these commandments, or some of them at any rate, and he teaches us that beneath the surface of murder lies anger. Beneath the surface of adultery lies lust. Beneath the surface of theft lies covetousness. In other words, even if we haven't committed these sins outwardly, they still exist in the heart. We've committed them inwardly. And Jesus is teaching more here, I believe. Secondly, he's trying to show this man the purpose of the law. And the purpose of the law is to reveal our need. To show us that that we are not good. And that we are not okay with God. And that we need someone who is. Galatians chapter 3 verse 24. The law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ. And Paul said it this way over in Romans chapter 3, verse 20, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in God's sight. In other words, we're not declared innocent by trying to keep the law, and it continues, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. In light of this law, though, our ruler maintains his confidence. He is certain. All of these things I have kept, what am I still lacking? Mark records the response of Jesus to him. Quote, looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him. That's compassion. And that's mercy. That's an example for you and I as we look into the, to the faces and as we address the responses of the misguided. Those who believe they're, they're self-sufficient, the, the ignorant. This is a model for us to look at them with love. And Jesus says to this man, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Our Lord, again, has specifically addressed the sin of the heart. In this passage, he's winnowed it down, and he's got right to the core. Go and sell, rich young ruler. Come and follow. And this is a call for you and I, just as it was for this ruler, to make Christ first in our lives, to let there be nothing that stand between us and Christ. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving. For he was one who owned much property. I believe this is the saddest among all Bible verses. Because here a man has come to Jesus and he's asked him what what he must do to enter the kingdom. And Jesus tells him, he, he explains it. And the man walks away. Sad. Warren Wearsby's written of this passage of, of all the people who ever came to the feet of Jesus. 
This man is the only one who went away worse than he came. Do you know that happens here? That people will come into our sanctuary and hear this good news of Jesus and walk away unchanged. Hearts are the same, leaving as they were coming in, prizing the things of this life in the same way they did before arriving. There's no, no room for Christ, no, no desire for Christ. It is sad. It's unnecessary. We must recognize that, that we can't win God by, by being good, however we define that. Instead, God is the standard for good, and when that is true, because that is true, we are not good. The Bible says, in fact, all have sinned and fallen short. The pride of the human heart, though, hears that and it wants to scream, No, no, I am good, at least in some small way. I'll move the line over if I need to. But God says to that, no. And when he does, he also provides a remedy. He gives us his son, Jesus. Jesus is good. He's the embodiment of all that is perfect. He is perfect love and he's perfect mercy. And all who come to him saying, Jesus, I am not good. They're forgiven of their sins and they are given eternal life. Don't leave here sad this morning. Don't walk away grieving. This is a free offer through Jesus from God. The man of our account this morning, he he had it all, at least from a worldly perspective. This man had youth. He had money. He had power. But he did not have Christ. It takes us to our second misconception this morning. We can easily enter the kingdom. We can easily enter the kingdom. The first misconception, we can enter the kingdom by being good. The second, we can easily enter this kingdom. The truth is that it is extremely difficult for rich people to go to heaven. In verse 23, Jesus turns to his disciples Truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were very astonished and said, then who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said to them, With people, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Wealth hinders entrance into heaven. Wealth breeds a self-sufficiency in the human heart. The, The more wealth we have, the less we need God. The more stuff I lean on, the less I lean on God. Wealth gives a false sense of security. God must love me if I have much wealth. God favors me if I have a lot of stuff. And wealth creates idols, things that we can value more than we value God. And just to be clear this morning, as we discuss wealth, I I mean wealth 
in terms of, of more than money. Um, if you look at verse 21, Jesus refers to possessions. Matthew's going to use the word property in my translation in verse 22. These words will be used interchangeably to describe the, the mass of what we have. The rich live lives full of stuff. And I also want you to keep in mind that Jesus isn't condemning the wealthy. Just because someone has wealth or, or stuff doesn't mean that they're disqualified from heaven. Jesus isn't saying that either. In fact, when you enter into heaven one day, you'll meet people that had great wealth, men like Abraham and David and so on. But what we see in this passage is that wealth creates a big problem for kingdom entrance. If we want to go to heaven, wealth can be a problem. I'm going to read you a different translation. Maybe some of you have this. Jesus says, only with difficulty will the rich person enter the kingdom. See, the rich man of our account this morning, he comes to Jesus expecting to easily enter the kingdom, but he found it difficult. For him, his wealth was an idol. And for him to take that and put it on the altar, to sacrifice it up to God, this was something that was too far. This is something he would not do. This is a price he would not pay. See, I think most people will sacrifice something for Jesus. But Jesus says, sacrifice it all. Jesus says, go all in to follow me. Jesus teaches us, and we all have it, it's that thing, that thing to which you cling, he would say, let it go. Let it go to come follow me. And the man of this passage this morning, this rich young ruler, he is not confined to the pages of our Bibles. Our account this morning isn't even a parable. This rich young ruler was flesh and bones. This rich young ruler lived and breathed. This rich young ruler had beliefs about Jesus. He had wealth and he had stuff. And this rich young ruler is me and this rich young ruler is you. We're among the most affluent people in the history of nations and the world presently. We are wealthy. Compared to the vast majority of the rest of the world, we have great wealth. Even the poorer of our societies. Let me read you a couple statistics. It was a little while back, Forbes magazine wrote a piece showing that the poorest in America are still amongst the richest in the world. One website reports that an annual income of just $15,000 is in the top 8% of wealthiest people worldwide. More recently, the Washington Post reports the global median income, or in other words, the average of all incomes spanning the globe, is $2,100 per year. Where does that put us? In Acts chapter 14, verse 22, the Bible declares that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Believer, your wealth will be your biggest. If I'm hearing Jesus correctly on this this morning, wealth is a burden to get to the kingdom. 
And again, we're, we're extremely affluent. We, we don't know poor. We don't know needy. This has not been our experience. And we can praise God for that gift. But I also submit that we do not fully appreciate just how difficult this makes following Jesus. Because Jesus says that the largest animal known to Palestine can fit through an eye of a needle easier than you and I can get into heaven. Now, I'm not saying that Americans can't be saved. I'm just saying that based on what Jesus just said, we, we shouldn't be surprised if they're not. There is a lot in this nation. There's a lot in the West, a lot of stuff, a lot of wealth. And speaking of surprise for a minute, look at the reaction of the disciples in verse 25. They're very astonished at this. Who can be saved, they asked. I mean, here they are watching this rich young man walk away. I mean, his head is hung low. And he's disappearing off into the horizon with a a thin cloud of dust trickling away. And they're watching this man walk away. And they're thinking if ever a man was to be saved, it was him. If he can't make the kingdom, who among us can? Because there he goes, as he disappears into the horizon, so too do their preconceptions. If this man who is powerful, remember, he's a ruler, he's a leader among men. If this man is youthful, if he is aware of Jesus at such a young age, with a, a whole life lived, or a life that he can live before him. And if this man is wealthy, wealthy. Truly God's blessing must be upon him if he has wealth and he has stuff. Oh, how easy it should have been for him to enter the kingdom of God. And again, this is modern thinking. Obviously God approves if I have what I want, if I have what I need, if I have the job I want, if I got that promotion. Obviously, God approves. I have the paycheck. I have investments. I have retirement. I have all kinds of stuff. Clearly, God accepts me. He gives me all of these things because he approves of me. I will enter heaven easily, but Jesus says it will be difficult. The very things that are celebrated are the very things that are an impediment. The disciples cannot believe this. And Jesus almost unflinchingly, coolly responds to them. With people, this is impossible. In other words, no person is going to get into heaven, especially if they own a bunch of stuff. But with God, he says, all things are possible. In other words, God can redeem. God can redeem those who have much wealth. God can redeem those who have much wealth and have created idols. God can redeem the greedy, the conceited, the proud, the self-centered, the covetous, those who envy all the sins of the heart that can prop up and supply the idolater. God can redeem them. This is not the work of men. This is the work of God. Listen to what God says through Ezekiel about this. It's Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. 
I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Three times God declares, I will. I will give. I will remove. I will put my spirit. And he throws in a cause you as well. I will cause you just to be clear who sits on the throne, who gets the glory, and who brings the change. God makes it possible. And if you're a Christian this morning, don't take this the wrong way, but observe how odd and how rare you are. Because God has intervened in your life to rescue you from this trap of wealth and stuff and to give you an affection for him and his son, Jesus Christ. As a citizen of the West, you are eyebrow deep in wealth, And because of this, because of the hindrance that this is to the kingdom, a camel has a better shot of fitting through the eye of a needle than you and I do of getting into heaven. And as a citizen of heaven, you are eyebrow deep in grace. God has made this possible. He has made the impossible possible for you. He's given you a new heart. He's given you a new spirit. He's given you new affections that desire to obey and follow him. You and I, we cannot easily enter the kingdom of heaven. But when we do, we know that God has intervened. Difficult as it is, with God, all things are possible. Well, all of this discussion sounds like we've completely blasted stuff and wealth and rewards. But Jesus doesn't let us there. He's got a little bit more to say. It's the third misconception that one might conclude we forfeit reward to enter the kingdom. We forfeit reward to enter the kingdom. This was the concern the disciples had. They have made big sacrifices to follow Jesus. And right now, they're feeling like they've ranked last. Boy, they've given up a lot. What's going to be for them? What's going to come of them? Well, it's going to be a misconception to think that there's no reward for them, that there's no reward for you. In fact, rewards await all those who sacrifice to follow Christ. Verse 27, then Peter said to Jesus, behold, we have left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, that you who have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Here in response to this question by Peter, we learn something of rewards. In verse 28, we see that the disciples will sit and judge. This verse is actually a fascinating insight into what is to come. From this verse, we gain at least three different insights about the future. There's a time coming when God brings renewal. My Bible used the word regeneration. 
That word's used one other time in the New Testament. It's Titus 3, 5. It refers to salvation over there. You may recall this passage. Paul writes of how God saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of his spirit. Now, this passage in Matthew chapter 19, verse 28, some believe this speaks of the disciples in the millennial kingdom. That's a 1,000-year reign of Jesus upon the earth. It comes after the seven-year great tribulation, which follows the rapture. But we also know from Revelation 21 that God's going to make a new heaven and a new earth. That means that ultimately, for the believer, eternity will be spent right here on this planet completely renewed, possibly a return to its original condition, the Garden of Eden, the original creation. We see secondly in this passage that national Israel will be restored. God's made covenants that are unique to Israel. They are unconditional. They are everlasting. Right now at this present time, Romans eleven twenty five tells us that a partial hardening has happened. It's happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. That means that right now God is using his church, distinct from Israel, to bring about the proclamation of his son. But the time is coming when these promises will be fulfilled. The promises made to Israel, she will be restored. And there's some role that these disciples play in regards to those 12 tribes. We see thirdly in this passage that there's some work to do. Verse 28 describes the disciples sitting upon thrones, judging 12 tribes. That word for judging can also describe some kind of a rulership. Perhaps a disciple that is ruling over a distinct tribe in the kingdom to come. The point is that Jesus has plans to reward those who sacrifice. Those who give up for the kingdom, they will be rewarded. And this promise in verse 29, that exists for you as well. This verse in verse 29, I think it can sound a little bit scary. I believe it helps to round out more broadly what's happening in our passage this morning. Back in verse 21, for example... Jesus gave a very specific application. It was directed to the rich young ruler at at his point, at his issue. But that point there applies to you and I as well. And in verse 29, the the principle is taught more more generally. And again, it's that that nothing should stand between us and Jesus. That a wholehearted following of the Lord, that, that should be our heartbeat. And again, the the idols of wealth and stuff repeat. We knew that this was an issue with the rich young ruler a a little bit ago. And we see it again in verse 29. This verse is filled with with stuff. Uh, Jesus cites houses. He cites farms. A better word for farms might be lands. And he now even adds relationships to that siblings and parents and children. No relationship, not even a relationship should be more important than Christ. In other words, to follow him would be to to make him the most important person in our lives. To follow Jesus would 
make that relationship the most important relationship in our lives. And by the way, all those other relationships, for them to fall into place and to work out right, Jesus needs to have that first place because then you're going to be able to start to navigate all the other ones once Christ is right. Jesus says that when we do this, there is a rich reward. And whenever we give up for Christ, he says he's going to repay many times as much, and that includes inheriting eternal life. Now, this is indeed a different way of thinking. Jesus concedes that. It's going to be difficult to find an infomercial that's going to promote this way of thinking. If after all we do this, we're we're not going to rank very high in life. We may not see a a ton of return on this side when it comes to to wealth and stuff and those things that that might matter. But he says, many who are first will be last and the last first. That even though this is opposite the way we might think, the way perhaps we, we used to think, this is a good thing. Don't miss the kingdom. Abandon misconceptions. Remember, we can't win God by by leading a good life, by being good, by doing good. Following Jesus, that's how we are made right with God. We saw also in this passage that this is not easy to do, not in the culture in which we live, not with the wealth that we possess, but with these things that seem impossible, God can do them. God can redeem. And we saw lastly that there is huge reward for the believer who does this. For those who, who, who give up now to gain in the end, Jesus does not forget that. He does not overlook that. So as we close this morning, I want to ask you a question. What competes with Christ? What in, in your life this morning competes with Jesus Christ? What do you need to sell, to use the word of our passage? Or what do you need to give? What do you need to let go? And if this is hard to answer, I'll give you three checks, three questions to ask. We'll call it three checks to make. You can check your finances. We will always spend money on those things that are most important to us. That would be a place to look to find something that could be competing with Christ. Secondly, check your time. We almost always prioritize things that are most important to us. They get our time. That would be another place to check. And thirdly, ask your spouse. Your spouse will have a pretty good handle on what's most important to you. Jesus says, for all who come, all who come to follow him, he, in essence, by the end of this passage, he says, trust me. You can trust him. If you do these things, if you've spotted an area, if you have something to give up, do that and trust him. It was either Hudson Taylor or David Livingston. These were both missionaries of a bygone era. Maybe it was both of these guys who said it. By the way, Hudson Taylor served as a missionary. He was there over 50 years in China. 
And David Livingston served in Africa. He has an amazing or very interesting life to read about. He actually survived a lion attack while building missionary outposts. But both of these men, I think they both said it, both said, I never made a sacrifice. I never made a sacrifice. That seems impossible. Fifty years in China. David, you almost died getting attacked by a lion. You've made sacrifices. But these guys would argue with you. They would say, I never made a sacrifice. How can they say that? Because they write that whenever they gave up something for Christ, Christ always paid them back. He always filled in what they gave out. They found such blessing. In fact, they would argue that had they not made that sacrifice, they would have not received the blessing they've experienced. Sacrifice what keeps you from Christ. And know that when you do, like these men, Christ will fill you. You'll receive many times as much. And as Jesus says, in the end, eternal life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, in a moment we will sing, all I have is Christ. In this passage this morning, we are reminded that we have many things, but we know that they're all transitory, that they're all fading away, and that none of them will come with us. No matter how big we might build a house or a tomb, we will leave it behind. All we have is you, Lord. And I pray that as we sing this, you would knit the words that we sing from our mouth to the deepest depths of our heart. That as we sing these words, we would mean them and we would learn to practice them. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the good gift of eternal life. And thank you, Father God, for making what is impossible possible for us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.